Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Eric Dixon, President and CEO of UMass Memorial Health in Worcester, Massachusetts. Prior to becoming CEO of the health system, Eric was president of the UMass Memorial Medical Group and was senior associate dean at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. He served as the head of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Iowa Medical School and interim chief operating officer for the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. I've enjoyed speaking to Eric's governing board and senior leadership team on multiple occasions, and I'm lucky to count him as a good friend. Eric, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's great to hear your voice. It's great to hear yours, too. It's been too long since we've been together, and I'm hoping that we can kind of get back to a sense of normalcy. Actually, the thing that's kept us apart is a good place for us to start. The first question that came to my mind as I thought about getting together with you, as an emergency medicine specialist yourself, you have a particularly close emotional connection with the impact that the labor shortage is having in that setting. This labor shortage doesn't feel transient to me. When do you think we'll settle down, Eric? And where do you see that settling point being? You know, every morning I get up and the first piece of data I look at is the number of emergency department borders in our university campus, our trauma center, and the number of patients waiting to be seen. And when that number is high, I know we're going to have a really bad day because we won't be able to take transfers and stopping elective surgeries and, you know, that's the pulse of the patient that is our healthcare system. And recently it's had a very weak pulse and there's been lots and and lots of patients boarding in the emergency department and, and waiting to be seen. And I feel for those emergency providers down there, those caregivers, because I know what they're going through. And it really comes down to one thing, the loss of people from the healthcare workforce. And more so in the skilled nursing facilities and nursing homes that take our patients when they've made it through their inpatient event, and then they back up in the hospital, and then it backs up into the emergency department. We've lost about 15% of the healthcare workforce in the United States, and I'm hopeful that we'll get some of them back, but it's clear that we're not getting all of them back. And the pipeline for most positions is a minimum of two years, And the pipeline isn't big enough right now, given the increasing demand with the aging of the population. So when people ask me to predict the future as much as anybody can do that, I I say it's going to be a rough couple of years in healthcare because we're just not going to have the people we need to get the job done. When I hear you say that the status of your ED is the pulse of the organization and gives you kind of a leading indicator as to how that day or that or that couple of days is going to go, it makes me think that the problem that we're dealing with as a society in terms of health disparities and unequal access, uh, whether it's insurance accessibility or simply not having the infrastructure in certain parts of the geography to make a front door available to everybody, that tends to push that front door onto the emergency department. Do you think that we could somehow make the situation somewhat less emergent by doing something to get those access points more available for people so that they don't all show up in your ED? I think there is a lot that we can do to keep people from showing up in the ED in terms of access 
For me, the area of greatest interest in emergency medicine is EMS. And I know that a significant portion of the patients that are transported to the emergency department didn't need to come to the emergency department, could have dealt with that through digital medicine and and the paramedic at the scene, uh, connecting with the emergency physician, giving them instruction, and then going back and checking on the patient four hours later. And yet, we just seem so unable to innovate and change the model of somebody picks up the phone, needs help, we're going to send help and move them to the emergency department into the most expensive setting you can imagine for healthcare instead of leaving them in their home and addressing the problem there. With what we can do with remote patient monitoring, um, I can see the patient in their home. The paramedic can deliver most of the medications I need. I can put them on an EKG in the home and monitor them continuously or for that episode to try to see what's going on. There's these incredible emerging technologies that we're really not able to take advantage of because the system isn't designed to innovate fast enough because of the way that we get paid in healthcare. And so hopefully we'll have learned from COVID, especially now that we have a smaller workforce, that we're not going to solve the current problem and the future problem of healthcare just doing it the same way. And we're going to have to create room to innovate and do things differently. You know, one of the fascinating things about a conversation with someone as smart as you are is that it takes me in a direction that I didn't anticipate. I'm going to take a detour for a quick second and follow up on something that you said with respect to the inability to to innovate. I hadn't anticipated talking to you about this today, but I'm going to now because it makes sense to. The study that we're going to be doing this year and the one that I've invited you to be part of envisions a future in which uh, payment isn't the piecemeal uh, fashion that we have now. It's also not capitation and, and risk, but it envisions a future where health systems are given a global spending budget based on just treating the patients who are standing in front of them. And it would allow a bit more flexibility. The funds would be fungible and would allow you to do some things that it's difficult to do when you're running on a treadmill chasing the, the, the reimbursement, do you think? Absolutely. And I'm a big believer that the best way to be able to care for people in a region in the future is through an integrated delivery system that has both an insurer and a provider arm and that you can use that premium dollar to do whatever it takes to keep the patient home and healthy, their chronic disease managed. We have a hospital at home program and there's others across the country. And it's just incredible to see what we can do in the patient's home, food, linen, continuous monitoring, two nursing visits, a visit from a physician, either in person or a digital visit. And what we're seeing is they don't have falls in their own home. They don't have hospital acquired infections because they never hit the hospital. They don't end up going to a skilled nursing facility because they're already home. And we have very low readmission rates. And that waiver is about to run out at the federal level. It was a waiver that was created in part to our ability to respond to COVID. And it's like, this is a better model of care. And yet, because we can't get paid for it um, the way we would get paid for the hospital service, you know, there's a chance that we'll have to close that program down. What a shame. We've shown it's better and other systems have shown it's better, but it is the payment system that is holding us back. 
bring that innovation and that enthusiasm to this year's study because I'm excited to have you on that group because we're going to explore exactly that dilemma. You know, one of the things that struck me thinking about chatting with you today, UMass Memorial was one of the earliest mergers of large health systems in my recollection. I've been in this job now for I'm in my 28th year, and I can remember when UMass Memorial merged. Um, it was long before it became kind of so common and such a ubiquitous process around the country. Have we gone too far with mergers and acquisitions in the last 25 years or so? Is there such a thing that's big enough? I think there is a size that is big enough. It used to be $3 billion, and you did a great study back in the UHC days that showed that, you know, once you get to $3 billion, it, you were secure, but it didn't make a difference getting bigger. Now, that's an older study, and it's probably $5 billion now is the, the ideal size. We've had a lot of opportunities to merge with other health systems and bring smaller health systems in, and it just didn't make sense because our mission wasn't completely aligned, and there was no synergies there. So, We've been very selective uh, since that original merger to only bring in pieces that make sense because there'll be some synergy there, maybe joint programs that we'll do together, um, programs where we can start to decide we'll put this service here and this service here and really carve up territory, something you can't do when you're independent. But I think at $5 billion, you've got enough size to have a good corporate services platform, a robust IT system, a ERP system that manages all your back office functions, a good central billing office, but yet you're still nimble and you still can be in touch with the frontline workforce. And what happens when you get too big, especially if you spread the geography too far, is you're really squelching the ability of your healthcare system to react quickly uh, to changes in the environment. And you lose touch with the people that are furthest away from the corporate office. And that's, for me, if I can't know the people locally and bring some value to them, then it just doesn't make sense for us to merge. Our latest research takes that idea of regionalization and let me pick up on that thought of yours and build on it. We envision a new definition of a market rather than a small local geographic area. We're envisioning kind of what we're calling a regional healthcare cooperative. And it might be defined kind of by gravitational pull. If you think about the patients who are uh, acute enough or have significant problems enough that they need to travel for care, the question then becomes, historically, where have they gone? And if you follow those patients and you allow that kind of osmotic gradient to lead your thinking, you can establish these kind of regional boundaries around something that I envision as a regional healthcare cooperative. I'm going to guess, knowing you the way I do, that regional idea would resonate with you as opposed to health systems hopscotching over geographies and merging with each other just for the sake of becoming 10 billion? I started early on in the days of IHI working with Don Berwick and he used to talk about regional systems of care and almost exactly what you're talking about, the ecosystem that you have to create. Um, 
if they're not contiguous, it's really hard to get some synergies. You might share data centers or some certain corporate services platforms, but even with the EHR, the power of sharing the EHR is that your patient in your small community hospital or critical access hospital is coming central to us that may be at the tertiary trauma center. And now I have all that information you've been gathering on that patient to help me guide the care of that patient. So sharing the EHR for somebody far away from you, it doesn't get you that synergy. So it, it absolutely resonates with me. The scariest part for us is, you know, you once said to our board of trustees that you can't kill an AMC unless you turn it into an insurance company. And Ken Kaufman followed you, uh, you know, at our next board retreat and said, the whole key is to become vertically integrated and become the insurer. And I know <laughs> Ken is a friend of yours. He is, yep. And the board just looked at me and I said, I wanted you to have both points of view here. But I do think with the emerging technologies, especially in digital medicine, you're going to have to control that premium dollar at some level. And we're showing right now that there is so much you can do in the home today that you couldn't do 10 years ago. And that either the payers are going to have to catch up quickly with what we can do in the home and pay for that, or we're going to have to become the insurer. And uh, you know, we're having battles right now with the insurers that saying, if you don't pay for our hospital at home program, I'm not giving you a contract. And I have to have this. Our hospitals are way overcrowded. I got 50 people waiting for a bed in the ER. I can't take transfers today. And I can care for a lot of those people in their home if you'll just make this a contracted service. And they don't see it. They're looking at a spreadsheet. I always said if they could see it from our perspective, they'd act a lot differently. Well, I think there's probably more common ground between Ken's point of view and mine. Maybe even back when the two of us were speaking to your board, Ken is a good friend of mine. We don't always see exactly the world through the same set of lenses, but I would actually adapt the idea of the insurance function and maybe move it from the health system to the regional healthcare cooperative. But I'd absolutely think it needs to be drawn closer to the delivery of care because otherwise you just have these unintended consequences of paying for something the way you always have and then asking somebody to do something different. It's very difficult to get innovation. You know, I've visited with you enough times to become really impressed by your personal values. And what I would characterize about you is an unwavering expectation for everybody to do the right thing. I mean that sincerely. When health systems form, they make a promise. You can read it in the press releases of almost every merger and acquisition. The press release will say the same words. We're going to deliver the right care in the right place at the right time. And it always makes me smile because that would suggest that we're going to rationalize where we do what. We're going to decide uh, where it makes the most sense to do which services. We probably are not going to tolerate low-volume surgical programs that are operating below proficiency standards and that sort of a thing. Eric, when you've encountered organizational inertia, what have you done to push through it? Well, I, I just brought in a new president of our, our medical group, and this is my old job, and said, you know, you're going to get into these situations, especially with the academic chairs and these debates about how to do things. And the most important thing you have to do is remind them that we all want the same thing, 
right? We all want our patients to get great care and to create the best possible environment for our faculty and our caregivers. So once you get agreement that where you're going, where you end up is a better place for the patients and your caregivers, then the only thing we have to discuss is how we're going to get there. And if you don't start with that why, you know, what we're trying to accomplish, you start getting into these debates about things, and I don't even know what problem people are trying to solve. So for me, anytime we start to have that inertia, I just shine a light on what's it like to be a patient here? What's it like to be a caregiver here? These people are depending on us, and we all want for them to get great care and for there to be a great experience for our caregivers. Now let's just work together to find a solution to this problem that makes things better for our patients and our people. And I like to say, you got to embrace your ignorance as a leader. That is that I go into these meetings and say, I have no idea how to solve this problem, but the people in this room do. And set up the problem and say, here's what we got to solve for. And it always comes down to, you know, better care for the patients and a better experience for our caregivers. Our true north for our organization is best place to give care, best place to get care. And that's how you get over the inertia because we all really do want the same thing. I'm inspired by listening to you. Let me ask one final serious question before we wrap up. If I were to criticize the place that we find ourselves right now, I would probably say that medicine in America has become not probably on its own volition, but perhaps just by virtue of 40 years of circumstance. In my mind, too much big business. We operate like corporations and we lose sight of what you just said. We lose sight of the why. If we're not careful, we start to make uh, business decisions as opposed to uh, to healthcare decisions. And I believe that we need an element of altruism that actually, I think, drew most all of us to healthcare as opposed to going into other industries to begin with. And if we don't refine that streak of altruism and put the best interest of the patient first instead of the kind of corporatization of, of healthcare, that something gets lost. What do you think about that? I think you're exactly right. And I think that's leadership. And right now in healthcare, more than anything else, we need strong leaders and we need strong leaders that can attach their people to the mission. And, you know, if you want to overcome burnout, attach your people to the mission. And I, I walk around and pass out these dark chocolate candy bars to our staff, over 100,000 of them so far. And they say, thanks for taking great care of our patients and one another. And it really is that simple to me. You know, take great care of our patients and take care of your fellow caregiver. And if you do that, we'll be all right. And you'll create an environment where people will want to work here versus somewhere else. I really do think that the healthcare systems that are going to do the best coming out of the staffing crisis are those that have attached themselves to the mission. And, and that's what we're trying to do right now. Before we close, I always like to ask a question that allows listeners to get to know a, a guest on a personal level. Now, usually I know the answer to the question that I'm about to ask, but today 
is a little different. Eric, how do you go from graduating from the police academy to becoming a renowned physician who then taps maple trees to make syrup? I'm an attention deficit uh, <laughs> person at my core. Tomorrow I'm flying out to Colorado to do a course on becoming a horse farrier. I just love learning new things that I knew nothing about previously. And so when the local SWAT team asked me to be their medical director 20 years ago and said you had to go to the police academy in order to serve in that capacity. I took them up on it and was the most fascinating experience I've had. And so, you know, whether it's birthing horses, which is something that my wife and I do on our farm, or driving in harness races, I just love new and different things. And then I get bored and move on. I guess that's the emergency physician in me. We just love going from the sore throat to the multi-trauma to the delivery in the ER. And I'm the same way in my personal life. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, we all recognize strength of character and a commitment to doing the right thing when we see it. And I see it every time that I visit you at UMass Memorial. It's genuinely inspiring to be around. I, I can't thank you enough for making the time for us today. And I really appreciate you having me on, Tom, and I can't wait to have you back here in Worcester, Mass, and have you present to our board again, because things have sure changed since the last time you were here. As I mentioned to you before, if the airplanes are full, I'll walk. Just let me know, and I'll, I'll be there. All right. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Thanks to Eric, and thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then.